Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. What's up, everybody? It's Zach. Yes, again, it's me, your boy, your host, your friend, your coworker, maybe your coworker. I don't know. If you work with me, you know that I have this podcast. And I mean, hopefully, if you're checking it out, you know, you know, hopefully you're having a good time. Shout out to you. I'm not going to say your name, but you know, I'm talking to you. What's up? Um, look, you know what we do? We serve to amplify the voices of black and brown people at work. And we do that through talking to black and brown people. Uh, in a variety of spaces, right? So these can be executives, public servants, activists, creatives, entrepreneurs, uh, anybody. And, and we try to have these conversations in approachable and authentic ways, centering black and brown and otherwise underrepresented experiences and perspectives at work. And today um, we have with us a very special guest, Michelle Kim. Michelle Kim is the founder and CEO of Awaken a firm that empowers leaders and teams to lead inclusively and authentically through modern, interactive, and action-oriented workshops. Prior to Awaken, she had a successful consulting career working with the C-suite and VP-level executives at high-performing companies around the world, helping them set ambitious business goals and align their teams to achieve them. While working in management consulting and technology startups, she experienced and validated firsthand the urgent need for modern, up-to-date education that empower leaders to be more empathetic, agile, and culturally aware. Come on now, culturally aware. Pay attention. Michelle's experience in organizational change management, strategic goal setting, and social justice activism set the groundwork for Awaken's multidisciplinary and action-oriented learning programs. As an immigrant queer woman of color, Michelle has been a lifelong social justice activist and community organizer. Michelle, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm so honored. No doubt. It's a pleasure. It's a, it's a, pl- <laughs> it's a pleasure. That's the sound effect that you told me about. Yes. Yes. So, so for those who are, who are newer to the show, I have a soundboard. I have all types of sounds on here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we try to flex, you know, we, we add a few things from time to time. Um, and you know, you know, we just, you know, in, enjoy yourself. You know, if, if you're new to the space, uh, sit back, grab something to drink. It doesn't have to be alcoholic. You know, I respect your choices, your boundaries, uh, but enjoy the soundscapes that are going to be coming to you in this episode and many more to come. Um, I love the production. It's, you know what? We, we got to <laughs> add a little bit of razzmatazz just from time to time. 
Um, so, so let's do this. You know, I gave a little bit of an intro, but for those of us who don't know you, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Zach, for the intro. Um, I think you covered a lot in my intro, but I think something that uh, some people might be familiar with is actually my writing. So I am an avid writer. I, that's how I communicate my thoughts and perspectives to the world. Um, in addition to facilitating workshops and doing speaking um, like this one or on stages all over the country. Um, my passion is in really closing the gap between how we talk about social justice in our society today and how, you know, quote unquote, diversity and inclusion gets done in the workplace. Um, so I think that there's a lot of work that we can do to help bridge the gap in understanding, awareness, and how we communicate with each other. Um, and also, fun fact about me that I'm a Virgo. And Shout I whoa whoa whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said, you said you're a Virgo. I'm a Virgo. Man, shout out to the Virgos one time. I'm also a Virgo. You know what I'm whoa. saying? They don't know about us like that. But like, like, please, please tell us about your Virgo ness. You know, a lot of my friends who know me closely um, know my tendencies to be highly critical. But I also think that that is what, I think being critical gets a bad rep, but I actually think that being critical is what makes me uh, decent at my job. (laughs) Uh, I also think that I have perfectionist tendencies, which I don't think is healthy. So I'm working on that. Um, I like being organized. I am a huge fan of to-do lists. Um, and I, I love, um, uh, my, my love language is acts of service. So I think that also aligns with me being a Virgo. So I tend to, um, you know, go overboard when it comes to supporting other people and uh, sometimes to a fault because I need to prioritize self-care and boundaries and all that, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not perfect at that stuff. I just feel so, I feel so seen in you talking about yourself. (laughs) good i'm glad i'm glad virgos unite they do and you know what i honestly like here we are you know two people who overextend for others sitting down having a conversation that really helps to amplify one another isn't that something that is something look at us hey look at us look at us huh who would have thought not me you know what i'm saying not me you know that's right (laughs) you're about to say something (laughs) i said i said do you know who else is a virgo beyonce Beyonce is a Virgo. So whenever I feel like I need to be in my feels about being a Virgo, I look to Beyonce for inspiration. I'm right there with you. I mean, if she, if she can do it, certainly, oh, yeah. certainly I can do it. And you know, and my dad's a Virgo. So shout out to my dad. He was born on the sixth. I was born on the fourth. And, uh, you know, we're a lot alike. So, um, so yeah. Okay. Okay. So now, um, let's talk a little bit about, about your inspiration for social justice and like, and I really want to, cause social justice is such a broad term. It's often even like used as a pejorative these days. So like when you say social justice and like your history, what does that look like for you? That's a great question. Um, so my journey into social justice work really began with the lens of being a queer person. Um, not, you know, I, I think my journey really started with my coming out. So I came out as queer and bisexual when I was 16. I was in high school and I was really confused. 
they didn't know a lot about any, you know, social justice issues beyond, I think, what people were talking about then were women's rights. And, you know, now I understand that to be white women's rights. So we'll get into that more. But I, when I came out as queer, I didn't have a lot of resources. So I was really actively searching for community and support um, to make sense of who I was. Um, I was really fortunate to have found a great support group within my high school that was kind of an underground support group. Um, and through that, I found out this uh, found out about this program happening at UC Santa Barbara where they were doing youth activism um, summer camp type of stuff for LGBTQ young people. Uh, so that was my entryway into social justice work. And that's where I learned how to organize, how to, you know, stage protests and knowing mm-hmm. my rights as a student activist, and that's where I learned about um, social justice activism and writers who wrote about social justice, like Audre Lorde. Yeah. So that was my entryway into understanding social justice is through the frame of my being queer and learning from queer trans activists, um, mm. also young people, um, and that's also where I learned about the intersections of being queer and also being a person of color and all the you know the nuances of different identities and the intersections of different types of marginalization and oppression, how oftentimes they all come from the same root and source of patriarchy or white supremacy. So, you know, I'm throwing a lot of jargons here, but really at the end of it, for me, social justice is about, you know, understanding that we are all in this struggle together. And in order for us to achieve equity and equality and justice, that we need to have solidarity in this frame of social and so and so I'm really curious. Right. So I and so let me talk to you a little bit about my perspective, uh, it being singular and limited. Right. So I don't believe this is the way it is. This is like been my perception as I look um, a cis a head uh, black man, Christian black man um, looking across this like DNI space. Right. Like I'm seeing like different camps and groups. Right. So I see I see this group that is. Um, largely white and yep. who who like they're invited to a lot of the fancy things, but they don't they're not necessarily credentialed other than being some in, in certain a certain social strata. But they're not really credentialed in type any type of lived experience, nor they nor are they credentialed in any specific level of of education. But they're credentialed in like certain experiences from like, again, just being in certain spaces. Right. That that that, that are afforded to them because of their class and race. I then see another group of people that are very much so like activists, like they're on the street. If they're using social media, it's to mobilize something tangible. Um, It's to um, affect a change in some type of grassroots community level. And then I see like another group that is kind of like they're in the corporate space um, and they're, they're doing a few things, but they're not necessarily really like enacting anything beyond whatever the company needs them to do to kind of mitigate uh, litigious risk. What I'm also seeing, I'm kind of seeing like tensions against each of these groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about like your perspective, um, considering your, your social activist background and the work you do today. Like would do you see similar camps in the space? And like, and if not, like, what are you seeing? Do you think it's, do you think I'm oversimplifying kind of like the various camps and groups or like, what's your perspective on that? I don't think you're oversimplifying per se, because um, I do I do see what you're saying. I hear you um, in terms of there being different 
I guess identities were also a different approach to doing diversity, equity, inclusion work inside the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a couple of things that I want to clarify in terms of my beliefs is that I don't think anyone can truly call themselves a DNI expert. I certainly don't call myself a DNI expert because I believe fundamentally diversity and inclusion is about lived experiences. So it's all about how we make sense of our lived experiences in relation to the systems that we inhabit. Um, so I think everyone, everybody is an expert in their own lived experience, and I can't ever claim that I'm an expert in your life, right? So right. I think that's one belief that I have, that we all are experts in our own lived experiences. Hmm. And another belief that I have is that, you know, social justice activism isn't just about being out in the street and marching and protesting. And actually, you know, there's a lot of activism happening inside workplaces today as well through corporate activism but also just daily acts of survival for a lot of folks especially black and brown people underrepresented people of color and trans and queer people inside workplaces i think what they're doing just by mere survival and speaking up when they can is an act of activism hmm. um i think there's a greater sense of responsibility that i'd love for uh dni professionals to have whether they're inside or outside the workplaces in you know really making sense of how change happens and pushing the boundaries to serve the most marginalized people in the room um i think that's where my um criticality comes in i've seen a lot of white women take up the roles of head of dni that's where i start to question whether you know are they understanding the positionality of being a white person um doing this work inside workplaces holding the position of power um and you know i start to question sort of how how change is being enacted inside companies while prioritizing the needs of the most marginalized people so i do think that people without the social justice frame um as in you know i think the root of my education and the foundation of my social justice education that I've gotten from, you know, activists who were, you know, organizers at the community level. Right. What they've taught me is that in order for us to enact change, we need community, we need solidarity, and we need to approach everything um, through the lens of centering the most marginalized people and their needs. Because then we, everybody in between and all of us uh, will rise together. So that is sort of my approach when it comes to education or policies, whatever organizational design that we're t- talking about. If we can center the most marginalized people, then everybody else will benefit. So that's the social justice framing that I use to approach all of my work. Um, but I think I see some DNI people in the corporate space doing DNI work as if this is a new discipline that's not tied to social justice at all, right? right. As this is in a vacuum this is just about recruiting um the most you know diverse set of candidates that it's about retaining um those people once they get there but it's sort of in a vacuum without the understanding of systemic issues and history that has fueled dni to exist in the first place i think i think that's my biggest sort of <laughs> criticism about how dni gets done in the corporate space today and I get that right. And it resonates with me, which is why I was so excited um, because um, I really enjoyed, like I've read some of your written work and of course I follow you on, on social media. I mean, I love what, what Awaken is doing. Right. So, and, and really based on, based on what you're sharing, I'm curious, how does that translate into the work that Awaken does? Because, because everything you're saying, I mean, I'm hearing it right. But sure. I'm tr- I guess I'm trying to understand how that, 
how does that effectively translate in like majority white spaces and the work that, and and I'm making an assumption that the spaces that you engage are largely white, if they're not correct me. Um, But from what I'm looking at, it seems that the spaces are largely white. And it seems to be that like when I, when I talk to other DNI professionals, the subtext of a lot of the work and even some of the like backhanded critique that I've received, because I'm, I'm oftentimes received as, well, you're passionate, but you're not really credentialed, right? Like you're, you're a person of color and you have, you have a certain lived experience, but you know, you don't have the same, uh, uh, foundation that I may have as a quote unquote DNI expert. So, you know, your, your point of view only goes so far, or it's only limited to the black experience. Um, there seems to be like a subtext of let's not make people too uncomfortable, but the work that you're talking about in centering underrepresented or the most marginalized that I feel as if the argument could be made that you're, you're automatically uh, making other people uncomfortable. So like what, again, just what does that all of that look like as you yeah. translate into the work with awaken? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I'm also so curious about these credentials, right? <laughs> I, I see these credentialing programs or certification programs, like what are you certifying people for? I'm, I'm so um, curious. I think there are absolutely some skills that we can learn, whether that's facilitation or curriculum development or policy design that we can, you know, get better at. But in terms of understanding other people's lived experiences and the identities that folks hold and the complexity that come with that, I don't know if we can truly ever be credentialed enough to be, you know, discounting other people's experiences and opinions. Um, so that's my perspective on it. And um, in terms of how our approach translates into our work is, you know, I think we can talk about sort of the founding story, why we were created in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, after having done organizing work when I was in high school and college, um, I decided to pursue a career in, you know, uh, for-profit space because I needed to make money, let's be real. Um, And (laughs) I was told actually by my activist mentors who have gone on to uh, pursuing social justice careers um, as career organizers and nonprofit folks, um, that they were also experiencing very sort of similar harm um, because even nonprofits are predominantly led by white people, right? So I think the the issues that we think are non-existent in progressive, quote-unquote, more progressive spaces, they continue to exist while um, folks are not making enough money to make ends meet. Straight up. <laughs> I love the sound effects. <laughs> um, knowing that and knowing my situation as a, you know, I grew up low income and I needed money to support my family. Uh, the advice that I got from my mentors was, hey, you you can create change in certain spaces. Um, they warned me about the toxic culture, but, you know, I, I went in sort of, uh, ignorant about what I was getting myself into. Yeah. Um, so I also really am grateful for my journey. Um, having started my career in management consulting and in tech, I think I've experienced a lot of different things that um, that I, I wasn't ready for, but I'm grateful for, nonetheless. But when I entered in those spaces, I was exposed to and I searched for DNI spaces, right? Because I thought that that was um, what I knew to be social justice work. So when I joined an employee resource group, um, I was, you know, disappointed at the level of conversations that were being had around 
um, what it means to be inclusive, what it means to be a diverse place. And I, I was surprised and disappointed and disillusioned by what companies were talking about as DNI was actually quite surface level um, and marketing oriented more so than real actionable uh, behavior change or culture change that were being modeled by leaders of the company. Right. So, you know, I was going through different workshops and trainings and just kept feeling like I was not seeing the level of conversations that actually needed to take place in these spaces. It felt really safe. It felt safe. It felt whitewashed. It felt diluted. Um, and as, you know, somebody who was just sitting in the room and constantly challenging the facilitator, I felt like I was doing all the work. Um, <laughs> after the training is over, you know, unfortunately, the burden of re-educating other people who went through the workshop who now think that they are, quote unquote, woke, <laughs> um, <laughs> or who say that they checked the box, right? And, okay, we went through this unconscious bias training, so now we're good, and now I'm, you know, back to being a progressive person who cares about this issue, but who, you know, <laughs> wasn't challenged to really think differently. But the burden of their actions, their unchanged behavior, their unawareness, and their now feeling like they know what they're talking about hmm. falls on the most marginalized people in the room. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the frustration that kept coming up for me as I was going through different types of trainings, whether that was done by external vendors or internal people, um, that people weren't pushing people enough. And I genuinely felt the need for um, compassionate space for uncomfortable conversations. And that's our mission statement is to create compassionate space for uncomfortable uh, conversations to uh, develop inclusive leaders and teams. Um, and the way that we do that is by centering the needs of the most marginalized people, meaning we don't pat ourselves in the back when a workshop goes well um, from the perspective of a bunch of white men saying that that workshop was great. You know, that may be true, but if, you know, the one black person in the room said that that workshop wasn't good while a bunch of white people say that the workshop was great, right. we don't pat ourselves in the back for that. Right. But if, you know, we can support the the most marginalized people in the room, you know, in tech and also in many other spaces, it's predominantly black and brown folks, trans, queer people of color. If they give us the, the stamp of approval, if they feel like they were seen and heard and lifted um, and that they didn't have to do all the work, um, that's success for us. Right. So by designing our curriculum to speak truth to them and to, you know, have that frame of can we lessen the burden on people um, who are the most marginalized in these spaces yeah. by saying things that they can't say because there are too many risks and repercussions mm. that they fear, that's our job. And I don't think enough DNI practitioners out there are taking that approach um, because, you know, if they're internal, they, they their job is at risk. So I get that. So I think as a third party we coming in, um, we have a different level of risk that we get to take uh, because we don't have that kind of repercussion that we need to worry about besides not being able to come back to that space again. Right. And I mean, at the point at the point that, you know, they don't let you back. I mean, you already got the bag anyway. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well, I think we can come back because we don't often take on one off workshops. I think. That approach is also pretty harmful when, you know, companies come to us and say, hey, we just want to do a one day like diversity day off. Yeah. Uh, 
we tend to say no to those engagements because yeah. we really believe in delivering impact and working with people who are genuinely interested in real change. Um, so, you know, but I think the mistake people make is thinking that meeting people where they're at needs to be done by diluting the message. I don't think that's true. Yeah. Um, I think you can meet people where they're at with compassion and criticality. So you don't have to coddle people. Um, but I think you can be compassionate and make your content accessible uh, right. for folks so that they understand and they can move along the journey while feeling and embracing some tension and discomfort that comes with challenging their beliefs. So it's it's funny because you see like even in like our, our, um, our current political uh, talk, tone and timbre today from like mainstream media it's still around like the idea of respectability and kind quote unquote kindness um kind of pushing against pushing against this idea of like call out culture or call just talk keeping it real like just saying how things are um and it's interesting and I, i hear what you're saying about like coddling versus accessibility do you have an example of what it looks like to effectively call something for what it is mm. while at the same time making it accessible for folks to actually grasp and understand. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think there's enough work that you could ever do to like to cater to or, or mitigate against fragility. But I would love to hear like kind of what, what awaken does and like what that looks like for you. Mm-hmm. Hmm, let me think of an example think that's a that's a great question and i'd love to be able to contextualize this a little bit with an example um i think i don't know why this example keeps coming up in my head i think it's because of we're designing a curriculum right now around inclusive interviewing practices yeah. and one of the common questions that comes up is this idea of uh not lowering the bar and mm-hmm. hiring um in this sort of notion of meritocracy and I think, you know, one way to approach that is um, really sort of making the person who said that um, feel like they don't know what they're talking about and, you know, calling them racist and all of that, I think, is one way. Um, <laughs> I think another way could be really helping unpack um, why meritocracy doesn't currently exist, even though that is an ideal that we can strive for together and how people who are currently in companies today may not have been hired purely based on merit. Um, And how do you prove that though? How do you prove that? Yeah. I think there's a lot of data that actually backs up um, the claim around how meritocracy doesn't exist. I mean, what we often do talk about is that, you know, meritocracy is a concept that was created as a vision um, where we can all work toward. Um, mm-hmm. But we falsely believe that right now there are, um, there's, you know, sort of meritocracy in existence, but there's lots of data that shows that actually there's a lot of biases in the hiring practice, whether yeah. it's from the referral stage or, you know, the interview stage or del- deliberation phase. I think there's a lot of, data that actually shows discrepancies in the way that we make decisions Um, and I think you know calling that out specifically I think is really helpful Um, I think the the harmful um, alternative of sort of diluting that uh, fact of not 
you know, having meritocracy is that I've sometimes heard, you know, folks explain that to people in a way that actually equates hiring people of color or women as lowering the bar. Um, and that being sort of the, the you know, unfortunate mid, uh, uh, short-term solution, like, yeah, but we need to hire more people of color and women. Um, so, you know, we want to make sure that we are getting that um, uh, quota filled. So I think there's like a lot of weird ways of people explaining difficult concepts um, to make people feel comfortable because the discomfort in this conversation is the fact that you may not have been hired based on your merit, right? I think that's the tension is that if we debunk meritocracy, people who have these jobs in higher paying position, they are feeling attacked because they feel like they weren't, they they didn't get to where they are purely based on merit. Mm. And recognizing that they've had privileges that weren't afforded to other demographic um, groups, uh, I think that in and of itself is a discomfort. And I think a lot of folks have um, a hard time calling that out um, because we're then directly sort of highlighting the fact that this may be an awkward position that they're in. Right. Um, and I think talking about privilege in general is something that's really difficult for people. Um, it's not an easy topic for any of us mm. to really grapple with, but I think if we can't have those tougher conversations um, where we are directly highlighting a shining light on the fact that, you know, there it's, it's yes, we worked hard and there are struggles that we didn't have to go through to get to where we are. Um, I think if that conversation doesn't happen, it would be a huge mess. You know, Michelle, when you and I first spoke, um, you know, we, you know, we do our thing. We try to get to know each other first and then we do the episode a little bit of, uh, you know, background behind the scenes for y'all. But anyway, when you and I first spoke, we talked about um, people of color and that term. Right. And uh, we had conversations about living corporate and how, you know, we don't really use the term people of color. We just say we say black and brown. Um, and then you and I had a conversation about how you don't really consider or you don't count um, Asian American or that like that space East Asian in the people of color category. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think just to clarify, I do count Asians as a part of the people of color grouping, Thank you. Um, but I think there's there's context that we need to put into place okay. uh, whenever we're using that term. So I think the term people of color is a useful term when we're talking specifically about non-white people um, in the context of talking about white supremacy and how that impacts all people who are not white who experience racism and other forms of oppression because of their race. Um, Where I don't feel comfortable using the term people of color is when we're discussing specific issues that impact black and brown communities. For example, when we're talking about police brutality or the murders of black trans women I think it's really important for us to be specific about who we're talking about because as an Asian, East Asian person, I don't have the same type of fear or risk uh, when I'm around the police. Uh, I think that is really important for us to specify and that, I think that understanding around how there are very specific forms of racism like anti-Black racism, um, I think that clarity is so needed in having this conversation in a more effective way and also for you know Asian American folks to be able to show up in solidarity with folks who are experiencing very specific forms of marginalization and oppression. 
I just, you know, what I'm saying. I mean, I, you know, what, now what thing? One sound we don't have on the soundboard is like, like finger snaps. But I'm just <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I love it. You're, and 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 it's interesting because I think, you know, we're we're moving at the speed of the internet when it comes to a lot of this stuff, right? Like, and certain things become trendy or become, um, I don't know. Like they just they kind of just catch fire. And I think that I, I think the term people of color, it has a place. And I've seen it be used interchangeably when they're talking about black folks, right? Like I've heard it be used. It's like, why are we, why are we using that term right now? When we, we really are, if we're really talking about something targeted for black Americans, or we're talking about something that's targeted for um, Latinx trans Americans, right? Like I'm like, they're like these, these groups as niche or as just unique or small as they may seem to you, these represent actual human beings. So um, I think it's great that we're using them, but sometimes for me, it sometimes almost gets used as like a catch-all and you end up erasing a lot of identities and experiences and points of view. Totally. And I think if we can't be specific about the actual issue, then how can we solution around it, right? If we can't name what the actual issue is, it's not police brutality against all people of color, right? It's not. Police brutality against black and brown people. Right. Specifically, you know, people who... Um, are seen as a quote-unquote threat to uh, cops, right? I think I think it's really important for us to get specific around that so that we can solution around it because it wouldn't make sense for us to do, um, you know, to solve for all people of color experiencing police brutality because that's not true. Yeah. Um, similarly, I think, you know, when we talk about black maternal deaths, that's not happening to Asian Americans at the same rate that it's happening to black, uh, you know, folks who are giving birth. So, you know, I think specificity is important for solutioning the right um, outcomes. And also, so like you said, it doesn't erase people's experiences. Um, I think tech is starting to incorporate more of the term around underrepresented POC. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Asian Americans are overrepresented in many tech companies. Uh, but, you know, Asian American also similar to POC is a very broad terminology. So I'd it love is. to be able to see some disaggregated uh, terms that we can use to also talk about underrepresented Asian Americans. Um, but, yeah, I think sp- specific language is always helpful um, in most cases. And I think there's also a purpose to the term people of color when we can really mobilize and build coalition across all uh, people of color. I think it's just so interesting. I think I do think a function of white supremacy is like keeping things as surface as possible <laughs> so that because the more surface you can be to your point, like the 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 less uh, specific and targeted you can be in your solutioning. If you're not targeting your solutioning, then you're not really going to be able to affect true change. Right. Right. Because, uh, um, you know, and the last thing about it, like uh, about this, just in terms of like just keeping things general and like grouping people all together is like I know that in Europe there's a term that's called um it's it's black so it's black they literally just take all the <laughs> so it's like it's like people of color to the max right so it they it's it's called bam black asian and middle eastern yeah like what is that Michelle like that's that's <laughs> that is nuts you can't huh like I, like when someone told me that like I learned, I just learned about this maybe I don't know like a couple months ago. Like a colleague told me, and I said, "How is that possible?" Like so that those are thousands of identities and experiences and cultures and languages and histories. Like how are you just going to just lump? That's like you. So you're just going to take all the non-white people and put them in one big cluster? Yep. Huh. <laughs> 
considering the history of like colonialism and like oh my gosh like that's nuts like you can't do that and so anyway okay okay so from this conversation what i'm hearing i don't think that we always give like members of the majority enough credit to in their ability to have an honest conversation when it's framed effectively right like Mm. i think a lot of times it's kind of like well we don't want to bring that up because then that makes people uncomfortable or we don't want to bring that up because then they shut off and it's like eh, i mean yes people are fragile but like come on like we we got to be able to have some type of some level of authentic conversation around something Mm. um so so that's yeah i wouldn't go as far as giving them credit <laughs> 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 no i think i think there's a reason why we're you know why people are hesitant to have that conversation i think it's because of the backlash it's because of the fragility and it's because of the resistance and Fair. also frankly the repercussions that people face so okay. yeah. i think while we sort of finesse the way that we deliver certain messages without losing the criticality, but also having compassion and and being accessible. Um, What we also need to be doing is building the resiliency on the part of the the dominant or the privileged group so that we can receive that information and check their uh, fragility or check their defensiveness. Um, And I think that education needs to be more uh, prioritized than the other I agree. So, so I, I pre, and thank you, thank you for pushing back. Um, <laughs> I do, I do think, I do think that there is a there's a low level of fluency and stamina, right, when it comes to these conversations. Um, yeah, and I, you know, it's interesting because I just read a, I just read an article. I mean, it was it was it was published on Salon, and it was called "Diversity is for White People: The Big Lie Behind a Well-Intended Word." Have you heard? Have you read that yet? I have not. Yo, I, I'm gonna send this to you, but it's just interesting because it, it 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 really it's it's really this conversation in a very tactful rant form, just around like how DNI is often phrased today, and it's like phrased with like white comfort in mind, as mm-hmm. opposed to the the perspective and experiences of the marginalized in mind. Um, and so, so it's, I just I just find that very interesting. Um, you know, you're the first East Asian American person um, that we've had on the show. Um, and so first of all, you know, what I'm saying shout out, you know, shout out, shout out to you, you know, sh- you know, shout out, shout out to you for that. And, um, and, and yeah, and just being here, you know, Thank you uh, for having me. I mean, but I'm honored. No, I mean, I mean, I'm honored. I'm excited. I think, I think there's like this, there's like this, despite like civil rights history and all of the work, especially done like within California, LA, Oakland, um, in the sixties. And, and, and of course, like during the, um, during the era of the black Panthers, I think there's like this, this, this stereotype that, um, Asian, Asian Americans don't really care about social justice. Like, have you heard this before? And like, why do you, why do you think that that is? Yeah, I, I yes, I have heard that before and I continue to hear it quite often. Um, I think something that I hear when I meet people for the first time and I talk about what I do and we get to know each other better, um, a, a weird sort of form of compliment or they think that it's a compliment that they pay me is is this fact that, you know, I'm one of the unique ones, right? Mm. The, oh, wow, I've never met another Asian person who um, is like you or I'm so glad that you're doing this work because we need more Asian people doing this. 
Um, and I, I have mixed emotions about that because while I appreciate the acknowledgement of the work, I think there's also this um, continuing erasure of the historical work that different Asian American activists have done. Um, whether that's the labor movements that were you know, led by Filipino you know, uh, activists or folks marching alongside the Black Panthers or right. even current activists working on prison abolition, um, prison abolitionists who are Asian American, racial justice organizers, disability justice organizers like Mia Mingus, um, queer trans feminist activists. Uh, I think there's a lot of folks who are doing really radical work that continue to get erased. Um, so it leaves a sort of a bitter taste in my mouth when I hear that because I think we're, with that simple sentence, we're erasing so much of history and current work that's being done. Um, yeah. I also think that some of that common is valid in that you know, I do see a lot more work that can be done on the part of Asian Americans, specifically, you know, East Asians in tech, I think, is, is sort of the reputation um, that I hear about where people can be more um, active in doing DNI work or social justice work. Um, and I think there's real sort of lack of awareness or even the sense of solidarity amongst um, Asian Americans in how, what their place is, like what our place is in this conversation around social justice activism. Um, so I think it's, com it's a complex topic. I do think that we can do more. I think all groups can do more. Um, sure. And I think there's a serious lack of education around Asian American history and, you know, sort of even the current facts around, you know, the struggles that Asian Americans are going through, that if yeah. more Asians knew about that and more Asian folks found commonalities between our oppression and other uh, marginalized communities oppression that we may be able to build coalition um to do more amazing work no i'm i i i one thank you for it's a really thoughtful answer all, all of your answers have been very thoughtful like you're it's almost like you're very awake <laughs> yeah what's really interesting to like to your point around just like history is as much as the Black Panthers, I think I really think like the way that we the way that we think about and when I say we just like Americans, right, like the way that yeah. Americans um, categorize and think about the Black Panthers has to be like some of the most effective example of American uh, American government propaganda. Right. Like we think of Black Panthers as the equivalent of the KKK, like the black equivalent, like there are these terrorists and and that it's just full of these angry black people. And like we don't think about the fact that Richard Aoki was a he was a founding member of the Black Panthers. Right. Asian American. Um, and he only, and he and he's and he he's not like this ancient figure like he passed away in 2009. But we yeah. don't we don't really talk about that. We don't. And, and I and I'm, I'm really curious, like as to because like the Black Panther Party and like I'm not the new Black Panther Party, but the 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 initial original Black Panther Party was not like hundreds of years ago. And so it's just so interesting how. Um, how we're how we are uneducated, right? We're uneducated just on civil rights history, and we're certainly—I don't remember in high school or in college hearing anything about Asian American um, participation or engagement in the civil rights movement. I, that that was not anything that I remember being taught, nor do I remember that being something that was like readily available for me to learn. You know, right, right. And I think that that lack of education is within the Asian American community itself, right? I think I feel like sometimes I know more about 
um, you know, black history than my own sort of Asian American history here in the U.S. And I'm an immigrant, so I think I grew up with a different set of history lessons. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of catching up for me to do as well. And I think that the, I mean, even in the school system, I'm, I'm sure you've been talking to your guests about the lack of real education around what really happened in this right. country too, right? Not just for Asian Americans. But for, you know, black Americans and, you know, Latinx Americans, I think there's a lot of, you know, untrue history that's being taught to our youth, um, which is problem number one. (laughs) And I also think that there's a lot of internalized racism and oppression that exists in the Asian American community. um, And there's a lot of complex topics that I don't know if we have time to get into, uh, but things like the... Well, pick one. Let's go. I got time. You know, the, the myth of um, Asians being closer to white people um, mm, yeah. and the sort of model minority yeah. myth, I think that's a very prevalent stereotype. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of interrogating that we need to do when we talk about those things around, well, who were the initial group of Asian Americans that were allowed to come mm. um, to this country? And you know, what were the ramifications of that? And yeah. what are um, some of the current statistics that we can talk about it, even in the workplace around Asian Americans being the least likely group to advance to senior leadership positions, even right. though they're overrepresented in industries like tech in, mm-hmm. you know, engineering and analyst positions. Um, what does that, how does that um, impact the continuing stereotypes and narratives around Asian Americans being good math. And, you know, I think there's a lot of complex um, intertwined stories that we tell about our, you know, people, Asian Americans. And also there's a, we're, we're combining an entire continent right. um, and talking about Asian Americans as this monolithic group of people. When, if we were to disaggregate that data, there's actually a ton of, lessons to be learned around who's actually marginalized within the Asian American community, right? I think um, I recently learned that one in seven, I think that's the stat, one in seven Asian Asian Americans are undocumented. And they're the wow. fastest growing population that's undocumented in the United States currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't hear about that, right? We don't right. hear about that narrative. No, we um, don't. I think the, the way that white supremacy works is um, sort of this sort of untrue and erasing of different stories that make the people of color or the collective um, question and also not able to work alongside each other. And I think that's the the most difficult thing that I see in sort of the, the, the solidarity that we need to be able to move the needle on this work is that there's a so much lack of education on everyone's part, including myself, um, that we need to do a lot of work to be able to, you know, truly practice um, that solidarity with each other. Man, you know, and like Michelle, you've been just casually dropping just bombs like this whole conversation, <laughs> right? So I'm just, I just got to give you at least one because it's been ridiculous. Um, but one thing you said, and it, it, it brought something back to my memory. So I'm not going to say the consulting firm. Y'all want to look on my LinkedIn. Y'all can make a guess as to where this was. It's not the one that I'm at right now, but I never forget, Michelle, I was on, um, I was at a team dinner. This was some years ago 
and we were talking about, so, you know, I'm at the table and there's senior leaders and then there's like super senior leaders and there's me. And I was like, I was like a, a junior level person at this point in time. Right. This was like, like five, six years ago. Um, and so I'm, I'm a pretty junior person and, um, there's somebody and they're talking about this one particular employee and they said, Oh, insert name here is, is the perfect little Asian. He just does exactly what I tell him to do. He does his work and then he goes home. And I remember I was just eating my dinner. I just, I literally stopped. I looked at the person who said, I was like, Oh my God, like, I can't believe you just said that. And she looked at me and then you could tell like she like quickly averted her eyes and kind of was like, Oh, and she like, you know, like she got caught. But that just like that, that idea of like this subservient, just worker bee that just does whatever I tell them to do. Like that just stuck with me forever. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like you, like that's like, that's not, that is, that was, I was, I was, I'm still flabbergasted by that as you can tell. And I, and I told my coach, I said, Hey, this is not okay. Right. Like I said, this is what happened. And they were like, Oh, well you shouldn't have heard that. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not about me not hearing it. Like, they shouldn't have said they shouldn't have said that, but be, but beyond them saying it, they shouldn't believe that. Yeah. Um, so, really yeah, I just, I just wanted to share that. Like, I just I'll never that like that stuck with I'll never forget that that me hearing that. And mm-hmm. like, you know, and they were talking about the person like they were a, you know, like a like a resource. I know they and they call, you know, they call talent that in consulting resources, but like a genuine like piece of property. Right. Yeah. And it makes you just question like, well, damn, OK, you felt comfortable enough to say this at a team dinner. And it was a, it was a white woman, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like you feel comfortable enough saying this at, like in a mixed group um, at a team dinner. Like, God forbid, what are you saying about me? What are you saying mm-hmm. about other people? What are you saying about this person? Like in more private settings, you know what I mean? Right. Well, the scary thing, though, is that sometimes that kind of trope or, or narrative is almost seen as a compliment. It's and not. It's, it's as if, like, we should be be celebrating that, that, you know, well, you know, why is it so bad for us to say that Asians are good workers or Asians are um, good, the fo- good at following orders and what have you? I think sometimes that trope gets weaponized to yeah. divide the the people of color community even further, which is, um, you know, I think we've, we see, we saw that um, divide also in the recent affirmative action case, right, where um, Asian Americans, there were uh, arguments on both sides around how Asians are being discriminated against um, for getting good grades and all that kind of yeah. unfortunate and annoying <laughs> no, you're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, so you're you're right. So, and I, and to, and to be specific for our listeners who may not who may not be abreast, uh, recently that was the that was the affirmative action case that went before Harvard, correct? Correct. Yeah, and so it was interesting. So, like my perspective when I was as I was kind of like reading and understanding, it was like some people were saying, okay, like the underlying narrative, and I and I would look on. So I'm on um I'm on this app called Fishbowl. This is not an ad. Uh, but Fishbowl is like this anonymous posting app for consultants and other like different industry professionals and people on there were talking about about the case. And so like there was basically the commentary was, yeah, like you're excluding us and you're letting in these black and these black and brown people who aren't smart enough to get in. But you're trying to fill in these racial quotas. And I was like, I was like, wow, like that's I don't think that that's the point. I think if you and I think the data showed that 
the people who are really getting the, who are the most advantaged by this current system of applications and, and uh, acceptances were legacy students. Mm-hmm. Right. It was like it was people that, you know, but like but again, like to your point, it was like, you know, then, then you'd see people arguing. Then you see black and brown people arguing with Asian uh, Americans about, you know, what well, we deserve to be here. Just it's like, look, I think again, I think that's <laughs> white supremacy winning again when we start having those types of when it starts devolving in that way. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. And I think it also comes from the fact that a lot of people don't understand the point of affirmative action and why it got started in the first place. That, that part's pretty we're critical. Too, yeah. People <laughs> think that we're just trying to fill quotas or, you know, have diversity for the sake of diversity. But I think this is where the concept of DNI falls short because we're not actually ever talking about justice mm-hmm. um, and correcting past mistakes or historical oppression. So I think there's a lot of conversations that we need to be having that's not being had right now around this concept of justice and and sort of historical wrongdoings being corrected with some type of mechanism. Um, And I think similar conversations are being, you know, being had in tech and other industries where they're focused on quote unquote diversity recruiting where folks are talking about that concept of, you know, lowering the bar for the sake of diversity, like all of that stuff, I feel like are interconnected. They're just happening in different spheres. Um, and I think for me, it's, it's always coming back to lack of basic education around history and social justice concepts um, and people not understanding how all of these struggles are connected. Uh, and I, I think there's just a lot of room for improvement in how we're talking about these issues. You know, and we got to have you back to talk about the connection, between, like to really talk about justice and uh, and and diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Because like, I have all these questions, but I want to respect your time, <laughs> so let's do this. Absolutely. So, so let's do this. Let's do this. First of all, let's make sure we have you back. I definitely consider you a friend of the pod. So, th- yeah, no, straight up. So thank you for for being here with us uh, today. Now, look, y'all. You know, I don't know. I don't know what else y'all want from me. I'm talking to the audience now. You know, look, we come at y'all. We bring y'all some amazing guests. You know, we have these really dope conversations. I mean, what more do you want from me? What more do you want? Like, I'm not even trying to martyr myself. I'm just saying, like, what do you want? And when I say me, I mean living corporate. Like, you see this guest, Michelle Kim is a beast. Like, thank you so much. Like, this has been a great conversation. Now, look, before we get out of here, though, Michelle, I have a, just a couple more questions. First of all, where yeah. can people learn more about Awaken? You can learn more about Awaken at our website, www.visionawaken.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Awaken Co, Awaken Co, and our blog. Please check out our blog on Medium, www.medium.com slash Awaken dash blog. Um, I also have, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, you can follow me. Um, I also have an Instagram, so all the, all the social media platforms. There's going to be me or Awaken, so please follow us and subscribe to our newsletter. All right, y'all. Now look, we had we, now you heard all she said all the stuff. So look, no, so look, mm-mm, hold on, because y'all, because you're probably driving, you're doing something, you know, you're you know you're, you're in your car or maybe you're typing something up on your on your phone. But what I really need y'all to do, I need you to stop. I need you to stop and check out the links in the show notes. Okay, make sure y'all hit up all those things. I want y'all clicking on them links like. <laughs> You know, to click, check them out. Okay, um, we'll make sure we have everything right there for you now, um, Michelle. Uh, any shout outs or parting words before you get out of here? 
Well, I think we're living in a very interesting time right now. There's a lot going on in so many different communities and our society. So my shout out is to everyone who is doing their best to survive and to thrive, to take care of themselves, to stay vigilant, to educate themselves, and to be in community with people that care about you. Um, I think that's so important in this climate. Um, one last shout out I want to give is to uh, this new initiative that I'm a part of called Build Tech We Trust. Um, it's a coalition of different CEOs and tech leaders who have come together to say enough is enough around white supremacy spreading online on social media platforms and other tech platforms. Um, it was founded by Yvonne Hutchinson and Carla Monteroso of Code2040. Uh, and check out our work. It's uh, We're doing some really important um, work to build coalition around this issue of radicalization happening on tech platforms. So that's Build Tech We Trust, uh, and I can send you the URL so you can link it. Please do. Y'all, this has been, uh, first of all, Michelle, again, thank you. Great conversation. Um, we look forward to having you back because we will be having you back. Um, you. Uh, if if you if you would like to come back, let's, this is not a directive. You have agency. Of course, okay, I, cool. I would love to. I, I'd be honored. Okay, super cool. Listen, y'all, this has been the Living Corporate Podcast. Um, you know, you make sure you check us out at uh, Twitter at Living Corporate underscore Pod, Instagram at Living Corporate, and then now the websites. Now look. Y'all hear me rattle off all these websites every time. Livingcorporate.co, livingcorporate.org, livingcorporate.tv, livingcorporate.net, right? Livingcorporate.us, I think we even have. Um, we have every living corporate, Michelle, except livingcorporate.com. But we do have living-corporate, please say the dash.com. Now, if you have any questions or any feedback you have on the show, just hit us up. We're at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on DM. All of our DMs are wide open for your convenience. That's right. We take on the emotional labor of keeping our DMs open so that you can reach out to us. Okay? So you hit us up. You let us know if you need anything. Um, if there's anything else, uh, just Google us, right? You type in living corporate on your on your browser. We're going to pop up on all the different street, streaming mediums. Make sure to tell your mama about living corporate or your cousin or your weird uncle or your racist uncle at Thanksgiving. So you make sure you come on, shoot the link over. We got all kinds of stuff on this. So we out here. Okay. Um, what else? I think that's it. Shout out to Aaron. Shout out to all the listeners. Um, and God bless y'all or, you know, I'm sorry, bless y'all. Cause I'm not trying to offend anybody, but bless y'all. Okay. Uh, and what else? Uh, I think that's it. This has been Zach. You've been listening to Michelle Kim founder, educator, activist, public speaker, and of course, CEO of Awaken. Catch y'all next time. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.